0: I'm Sarah Williamson, and this is Going Long with FCLT Global. On this show, you'll learn what it means to be long-term from the top minds in global business and investing. Leaders from companies and investment organizations join us to discuss how they are leading their teams for the long run on issues including capital allocation, risk management, climate change, and sustainability. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org. Today, my guest is Charles Amon. He's the president and chief executive officer of CDPQ, one of North America's leading long-term institutional investors. He's responsible for the strategic direction of CDPQ and the global growth of the organization. Before joining CDPQ in February of 2019, Charles worked for nearly 20 years at Scotiabank and Scotia Capital. CDPQ has been a member of FCLT since our founding in 2016. So thank you, Charles, very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So just to start with, for our listeners who don't know CDPQ as well, could you describe um, your objectives, both in terms of the financial return um, that that you need to achieve, as well as the role that you play in the Quebec economy?
1: Sure, well, If you start with who who we are, so we're the second uh, largest pension fund in the country. One of the largest in the world. So we've got give or take about 400 billion of assets under management. And two things I'd like to point out. The organization has actually uh, undertaken uh, an expansion worldwide this the last 10 years. So to give you a sense our assets that are outside Canada used to represent about a third of our total assets 10 years ago, today would be two-thirds. So we've deployed north of $200 in that period, and we've opened up 10 offices around the world. And I think one of the elements that I would like to point out for um, people listening is our our mandate, what we call our double mandate, which is kind of a distinct feature. Uh, And what does it do? Well, you kind of have two components. One is to provide Returns for our depositors, and in terms of financial objectives, there, sir, I would say, um, you know, to meet the needs of our depositors, uh, we need to achieve um, approximately six percent annual return. And there's a second component that is quite unique, is in that um, we we contribute to the economic development of Quebec, as you rightly pointed out uh, at the outset. And so if you take those two components, uh, generating returns to our depositors, there's 40 of them representing, I'd say 6 million plus Quebecers. And what is interesting, Sarah, there is they all have different investment objectives, different risk tolerance. And so uh, overall, I would say the case CDPQ has on average a lower risk uh, level than the majority of our Canadian uh, peers. And one aspect that we like to describe that dual mandate is providing what we call constructive capital, which we can talk about, which is what, which is combining performance, the returns, providing returns, as I talked about, but also combining performance with progress, which is kind of our concern and focus on ESG and sustainability.
0: So, so tell us a little bit more about constructive capital, because that's that's very interesting. It's not just... You, you've talked about the double bottom line, thinking about the Quebec economy, but also, um, uh, can you talk a little bit more about your philosophy? What does constructive capital mean? Is it, how, did, how is that more than just capital?
1: Well, it's, it is something that we're really proud of. If you, if you think about it, um, it kind of ties up with what I'd say long-term investing um whose definition has kind of evolved over the years we feel and so it's making sure you actually uh you're committed you're active in going beyond and helping creating value so that's tied to the performance part of the equation in accompanying the company that we're invested in and and at the same time um the ability to reconcile and interest from multiple stakeholders. Uh, and that relates to the progress component. And so from that perspective, it's combining these two uh, that we feel is kind of a, a new approach to long-term investing that we feel is highly sought as you know, given expectations that have actually changed over the years, uh, the bar has been set higher. And so from that possibility, we see a lot of, um, of, um, of different scenarios where we can unlock, A lot of value add because we're not short sighted. So it's not just being a check and providing financial assistance. And the goal is to actually, with the company and for ourselves, to come out better, stronger. On the other hand, so it's not just being passive and patient. It's actually the approach, the mindset as an investor, and the perspective you take in investment.
0: So it's really being a an active, long term owner and caring about the business that you're invested in, um, as well as um, the other stakeholders that are um, associated with it.
1: Great, great way to summarize it. Yep, exactly.
0: So so we know that um, CDPQ has a long record of leading on climate change, and that's probably related to this philosophy that you're talking about. But can, can you talk a little bit about how you've applied this philosophy um, to thinking about climate change and how you've incorporated climate change in your own investment process?
1: Sure. Well, I would actually split the answer in, 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 in three um, in three buckets, Sarah. So what we've done so far, what we're kind of aiming for now, and, and what we're adding to this strategy. So if you look at, um, so we've launched this climate strategy uh, in 2017. And I'd say we were trailblazing in many respects back then. Uh, We were innovating uh, by incorporating, I'd say annual carbon reduction budgets for each of our asset classes. And so what have we done so far since in the last four years or so? Three things. A, we've reduced uh, our entire portfolio's carbon intensity by 38%. So every dollar we invest, Sarah, now emits 38% less uh, carbon intensity. Second thing we've done is we've actually doubled our green assets, what we call our zero emission assets, to 38 billion. And we've also uh, committed in targeting a net zero portfolio by 2050. So this is what we've actually done the last four years. Uh, Actually quite proud about this. And we've even tied our compensation uh, to meeting those objectives on an annual basis and reporting them uh, publicly. Now, the second element I'd like to say is now we think it's time for uh, renewing those targets and have more ambitious targets on the same two metrics, so green assets and carbon intensity reduction. So on, on the green assets, we uh, just announced that we're going to triple our green assets to 54 Billion, so those really contribute to the greener economy. And with respect to the carbon-intensive reduction, we're going to reduce it by sixty percent by 2030. All those numbers are relative to 2017 levels. So those those are um, important announcements because we feel that the world's changed even in a matter of a couple of years, and and the climate risk has increased exp- exponentially. So this is what we're work we're working on on existing target. But what I'd like to conclude on is we're actually also adding new components, Sarah, to this to this climate strategy. And that has to do with accelerating the transition. And so I, I want to spend maybe a minute on that because we feel this is a necessary path. To reaching a carbon neutral future. So, as you would know, we have a fiduciary duty to our depositors. So, we got to be diversified in our portfolio. So, we got to be invested across across the entire economy, the whole spectrum of sectors. And so, we're creating. Um, we've just announced the creation of a ten billion dollar transition envelope. Now, why that? So, we're going one step further. It broadens our strategy, and and it we wish to actually send a strong signal to support the the decarbonization of the highest emitter sectors, whether you can things are about steel, uh, lithium, plastics, copper, because we feel this is the main obstacle, as I said, in reaching a net zero uh, future. So how will we do that? Well, we'll make sure that we invest in companies that are certified upon our investment by, by external third parties, recognized scientific organization. And so we'll have measurable targets and improving, helping them out and reducing uh, their carbon emission. So we'll, that, we'll, we'll measure the results. We'll have as we used to have transparent reporting on an annual basis. And so that'll be, that'll be an, important, an important component that we're adding to make sure that now we go where we need to do uh, a big part of the job that needs to be done, that is to make sure the real economy transition. And last but not least, we're going to complete our exit from the oil production sector over the next 18 months. That is by the end of roughly end of 2022. And by divesting this last 1%, because we had, we had sort of done it in the last few years, we only had 1% of our total portfolio left in that oil production sector. Well, we wish to stop contributing to the increase in oil supply. Want to make sure we encourage the right strategies. We showed the leadership in the face of the climate Crisis and and actually help those players we feel are serious about transition and have you know credible platforms and we've actually done it with with numerous players in in the industry.
0: That's really interesting and I like the way you've divided into those three parts. As we think about if we dive a little more deeply into the third part, the the taking mm-hmm. on the the tough assets, if you will, and yeah. transitioning them. Um, you know, as you know, there's a, a fear or concern in the world that there are many investors that are not doing that, that the way they're going to get to um, net zero or something similar is by passing those assets off to, to weaker hands. And it sounds like what mm-hmm. you're doing is you've come up with a structure um, to lean into that. So you expect do um, you expect your stakeholders to recognize that when you take on uh, a a, a carbon-intensive business like steel, for example, that they'll mm-hmm. see the carbon intensity of your portfolio perhaps go up, but then you'll drive it down farther? Is that how you're thinking about it?
1: Well, you got right that some of the principles are, I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, what you've described is actually the fear of greenwashing, or even worse, uh, what we refer now to brown spinning, that is, people get rid of their um, higher emission assets and, and they end up in the in the wrong hands. And guess what, you know, for example, public companies might be subject to that regulation, but they may look cleaner five years down the road, but we're no better off selectively. Um, obviously there's going to be a bit of education to do because, uh, that, that envelope, that transition envelope, um, is, is going to be key. If you think about it, why we have this third component to our strategy, Sarah, as we keep progressing on green assets and reducing carbon intensity, at some point, you end up where it's the law of diminishing returns. You could have a completely green portfolio, but you're not accomplishing as much as you could potentially uh, by helping the real economy keep pace with that. So if, if you think about it, The transition will help. The transition envelope will help in that regard. And you're right. If you think about it today, I talked about greener assets, but three quarters of our total four hundred billion dollar portfolio, excuse me, is actually zero. That is green assets or low emission assets. So there's less room to grow from uniquely that those that perspective. And we feel that we're at this stage now where, as I kept saying, people have a lot of commitments that are being thrown out there to being net zero by 2050, but you just can't get there with the first two components. You really got to dig in there and do the dirty job. And actually, I hope that our stakeholders will perceive something there. That is, even as you push for things that would be considered renewables, wind farms, for example, Sarah. well, what gets into uh in there. You you need to have steel, you need to have copper, you need to have plastic. So fact matter is, we may all feel good when we're doing a deal in renewables or, or wind farm, but but the reality is the only way to reach collectively a net zero future is to have greener steel, greener cement, greener plastic. And so we got to get in there because that'll that's actually what will be moving the needle and get us to the finish line. So from that perspective, we feel that this envelope, people will actually measure, not where we come in on an absolute basis and we'll track that separately, but actually look at the delta of improvement, which we'll track with those companies. You
0: know, that makes a lot of sense. And, and then presumably also by having companies, by taking those companies through that transition from say, traditional steel to greener steel or whatever it may be, You're you're both adding value to the environment, but also adding value to that company and that portfolio because um, you those products will be more in demand in the future. Is that is that is that all? Is that there?
1: Bullseye, as we say, bang on. I mean, otherwise, these sectors, what what will happen is, without helping them transition, they will see themselves impaired. Because uh, they'll see, you know, shareholders or investors exiting their industries, uh, they'll see a higher cost of capital, so less in a position to correct course. Uh, and the hope there is actually that you, you actually re-rate the multiple and of those investments and and make a good return on it. Because we got to be also honest about something: if there's huge inflows of capital coming into ESG, as we've seen record on record. This is also inflationary by definition, so we got we got to be disciplined about all that. But the matter of doing doing good while doing doing great while doing good uh, is the way I would put it.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. That and and building that capability, and as you said, holding people to account in terms of tying their um, compensation and so on to actually meeting targets, so to avoid the. Yeah. Um, that, the, you know, the greenwashing mindset or brown spinning, as you said, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, so shifting gears a little bit. Um, I know that you did some interesting things in the face of COVID-19. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. it's, it's not over yet. Hopefully, um, nope. at some point here, we're still, you know, uh, slogging through it. But can you think about or explain to us how um, you, you responded to COVID-19 and what the, what your um, long-term investment strategy did in reaction to the, the pandemic.
1: Sure. There, there are a lot of things, but, um, and you're right. I mean, if you just start with the pandemic, where are we with that, um, with that event? It, it's certainly at a different phase now versus 18 months ago. And the issue is it still impacts, uh, various parts of the economy, sectors, regions, quite unevenly, to say the least. Uh, kind of impossible to know the exact duration, uh, the nature it'll take, the full extent of the consequences. So there's, as you said, there's no clear finish line, and probably some of those consequences will play out over several years. Uh, so we got to keep that in mind. The second element that I'd say before answering directly your your, your question, Sarah, there's kind of a new economy emerging pretty fast. Um, Industries undergoing a lot of transformation, deep changes, which I'd say it's great, represents opportunities, but at the same time, gotta be mindful there, there's always two, two sides of the same coin. There's also risk that comes with that. So when, when COVID actually hit, there's kind of, I would say there's kind of two questions we asked ourselves. The first one was how uh, to benefit from it in terms of the opportunities for our depositors and also coming back to this dual mandate, how do we actually help Quebec's economy uh, be best positioned in, in that context? So let me give you maybe two examples, concrete examples uh, on, on, these, on these two fronts. So I'd say supporting Quebec's economy during the pandemic, about I'd say two to three weeks after the, um, the lights went off, I'd say in mid-March around the world, we set aside and announced a $4 billion envelope um, to send a strong signal to all of Quebec's companies that we were open for business, uh, that use our capital, uh, again, constructively in turbulent times when it's most needed. And so the goal here, Sarah, was to help Quebec companies in two ways, either defensively, that is, we we asked them, do you have enough cash to survive? As you recall, it was complete lockdown, uh, first time. A lot of those companies ever experienced that, or, or strengthen their balance sheet, or actually help them outplay offense. Offense—that is, how to help them out come out stronger on on on, on the other end, not knowing how long it will last, or is, is this time to buy the international competitor you've been looking at for, for for so long? So we play with those two dimensions. I'd say we 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 dealt with hundreds of projects, a lot of inbound calls. We also proactively called 100% of our portfolio companies to assess their immediate means. So in a matter of a couple of days, we had reached out to over 200 companies in our portfolio. And also we've tried to be, I'd say, sorry, creative. That is not just bringing money, but I'll give you an example. So we had a real estate division, um, even Cambridge. So as you well know, it was a difficult time for them Let's it's on the shopping malls that, they, that they've owned because we had a lot of smaller tenants, retail tenants struggling, seeing their sales completely evaporate over time. So, and they had limited online capabilities. So we partnered our real estate division with a company called LightSky that you may know, which is one of our fastest growing tech company in our portfolio that actually does what provides online, online sorry, sales platform to clients. And so we gave uh, our real estate division's retail tenants free access to Lightspeed software for a full year. So we helped them sort of leapfrog in terms of increasing their online capabilities and and mitigate their their losses from a top-line standpoint. And on the other hand, Lightspeed actually accelerated its growth with new sticky clients. So see, that's kind of an example of creativity where we thought of bringing, I'd say, you know, cross-sell synergies within her portfolio to help out uh companies under under going into a lot of difficult uh, moments uh so that's one a second example would be uh from a technology standpoint so we all know the pandemic was a major step leap forward uh in terms of uh digitization uh and as we all know i mean you know next next 10 years there'll be more changes than the last in the last 100 so what we've done in the last 18 months, Sarah, is redefine and consolidate and coordinate our approach from a tech perspective, digital strategy perspective, uh, through three axes. That is, invest in a new economy to accelerate their growth. And there, you know, we we were, I think, probably the, the the largest or one of the largest VC investors in Canada. And we like these companies because they they actually strengthen their, their ecosystem. The second axis. is, protect our assets against technological disruption. And that's kind of like playing defense. So how does technology disruption affects what we already own? And that's an even more important question, sir, I'd say than the first one, it's a $400 billion question. And so we've incorporated that into, formally into our risk management process, even assessing cyber security and things like that. And the third one is transforming our own organization from a technology standpoint, using tech as a lever to strengthen the investment process, uh, increase digital dexterity, incorporate augmented intelligence into our processes and improve, I'd say improve the UN experience with technology with custom fit tools. So these would be kind of examples of what the pandemic created, but how we've tried to react to adjust accordingly.
0: Well, those are great examples. I like the, the um, you know, connecting your companies that can help one another out really in this sort of uh, in an unexpected situation. Um as well as just the, the idea of being open for business. Were the companies surprised when they, you know, sort of got the call that, you know, you were there and you had capital? Um was, <laughs> was that uh what was that were other people doing that or was that a little bit of um um a a loan call that they were happy to receive?
1: <laughs> well, listen, I'd say we we've announced it publicly and um I must say to my surprise, it, it actually got a lot of attention. Even I'd say <laughs> uh, from partners worldwide, um, and, and, and gather a lot of interest. And first and foremost, like just, just taking science out of it. I mean, we came out and said, okay, why 4 billion? It could have been less, could have been more. What was important to us is to send a strong signal that we're open to support them. I think they were, I think they were, it gave them confidence to move forward. Um, I think it showed them coming back to constructive capital, you know, what it means being reliable, being there when the situation requires it. I think they really appreciated it. And in some instances, I have to be honest, Sarah, in some cases we couldn't help people. It was either too small. We weren't best, um, the best institution to help them out. But in, in every cases, the personnel actually redirected those that we couldn't help, uh, necessarily, because we had we had criteria. Just to be to be clear here, this was not a program where you just apply and you got money. We had the same return criteria, but obviously took a long-term perspective and brought in a lot of creativity to what each of those companies needed, which was quite different from one another. So, from that perspective, I I think, and I'm proud to say, I won't say it's because of us. Uh, there's a, a lot of other reasons for that, but. Kind of glad to see the Quebec's economy, you know, quite diversified and, and amongst the strongest in the country. So from that perspective, I, I think we, we we rise to the occasion and we thought it was our our job to to stand up and and, and provide confidence in the in the system.
0: Yeah, now that 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 makes a that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned the importance of technology, both in terms of you know offense and defense, and also within your own organization. Do you think that that is um, the, the next big opportunity for CDPQ or is there something else? I mean, what do you think of as the 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 opportunity or trend or risk that um, you're looking at next as you as you the look next, the next big thing. Yeah
1: it's well you're right technology is one of them and, and I often say technology is too narrow a definition. It's more the the new economy. Mm-hmm. What is interesting in your question, um, the way I'd like to address it, Sarah, is that uh, the world is in quite increasingly complex to navigate. So the velocity of changes has definitely increased. So every issue that comes by, I'd say, is, a, you know, comes both as an opportunity and a risk or vice versa. Again, coming back, two sides of the same coin. So what we're trying to do in the organization is have that enhanced agility and adaptability to navigate those risks and opportunities. So you were, you were talking about, um, technology. Well, let's talk about the emergence of let's say digital led economy. Um, there's risk there. I'll talk about, for example, cyber security, uh, it's crucial now from a governance standpoint. So more connectivity, means what? It actually means no one is safe, exempt from any risk now. So there are increasingly sophisticated cyber security threats. Um, There's growing impacts for companies from a privacy standpoint, from an IP standpoint. And I'm not even sure that there's enough awareness collectively on these issues. And why I'm talking about that is you look at ourselves. We're one of the top three infrastructure investors in the world. So why I say that? We all know critical infrastructure are, are unique targets for cyber attacks. And um, I don't mind saying we were actually um, invested in the company that got a lot of press recently, Colonial Pipeline in the U.S. That was the largest cyber attack on an oil infrastructure in the history of the U.S. We're one of the shareholders there. The company was actually very well prepared and it avoided you know important consequences. But what we realize is you can't prevent an attack. It's not a matter of if it's more than a matter of when. And we're invested in 6,000 companies. So we're now incorporating a risk assessment in all of our companies that we invest in. Now, that's the risk. But if you flip it, there's an opportunity as well. Um, and I was talking, you know, the market pre-pandemic in 2019, Sarah was estimating that the digital, digital economy would be 25% of the total economy in 2030. A year later, or 12 to 18 months later after the pandemic, that projection by the market is now at 35%. That is, they think the economy, the digital economy will be 10% more than the total economy in a matter of 12 months. So cyber will be an industry that's gonna be growing massively. So what do we do? We assess the cybersecurity risk, sure, but we also invest in cybersecurity companies. So for example, as part of our due diligence process in a cybersecurity company that we like, our team were so impressed, what did we do? Not only did we became a shareholder, we became a client and we use them uh, as a supplier. So see, they're a good example of how our approach can lead to opportunities. Um, And and that is one ESG would also be another opportunity slash risk when we think about it, that affects how we're gonna actually allocate our capital. So opportunity is quite easy. We all know this is a huge opportunity, 50 trillion for the next next few decades, the transition. And it's actually paid off for us with with great returns uh, recently. And we've been innovative on that front. Uh, you've got the E. Uh, we, we've invested in some platforms for innovation and startup investing with CREO, which is a grouping of the largest family offices in the world. We've deployed S2G Venture, which is an agri food platform uh, for the next three years. Uh, Even on the S, we've got plenty of opportunities. We've launched a fund called 25 times three, which targets diversity as a lever of development. So we've done some transactions there where we want to make sure that we invest in companies that have 25% representation of diversity in their boards, in the management team, and and, in their shareholder base. But on the flip side, we often don't talk about that, Sarah, that often, but ESG can be a risk to it. It can be a significant disruptor and it can be inflationary, as I talked about. So these are important elements uh, on the E front, the climate, companies not moving fast enough, as we've talked about earlier. They can become stranded assets, higher cost of capital. Uh, the huge inflows chasing ESG assets around the world where, you know, it's inflationary by definition. And on the S front, we all know that social consideration, the way you do business today, matters to clients. They vote with their feet, and it's kind of your license to operate. So the way I like to point it out is there's a lot of big trends out there. They represent opportunities, but at the same time, uh, risk. So you got to be disciplined in how you approach them and and use it to your advantage.
0: That makes sense. One of the things we've thought about a lot is... um you know, how do we define long-term investing? And uh, some people think of long-term investing, as you said before, as, you know, just being patient, Um, but really Mm -hmm. it's about being agile. And it's about thinking about um, a future-oriented, it's investing for the sort of for the future, rather than the past, um, with that Mm -hmm. ability to uh, perhaps go against the crowd when liquidity dries up or or people hide or or whatever it might be. I and mean, how do you um how, how do you think uh, you'll you define long-term investing and do you think there's one of these issues that will really be the the driver of it over over the next decade? I mean, is it it, it you know, is it climate? Is it um cybersecurity? Is it technology or is it really much more of this idea of um, of being agile. I mean, how, how do you how do you define long term investing?
1: Well, well, I think it's, um, and that's an important question. I mean, it's it's um, as I said, the definition has evolved, and I think it has to do with um, the perspective you take in your decision making process. As I said, not about just being passive and patient, not about just the number of years. It's about what do you do? Um, and we do it at the case because I think what's something that's helped us over the years, and, and I'm seeing that with a lot of humility because I'm, I'm I'm I inherited that legacy which I want to perpetuate, but it has been influenced by by our double mandate, where we perceive that combining performance returns with progress—that is, you know, getting factoring in. Um, the objectives of multiple stakeholders and looking beyond just what you achieve immediately financially, but also what are the consequences of us investing somewhere more broadly, like concentric circles that, that expand, you actually get a lot out of it. And it may sound motherhood. The reality is in today's world, I think people looking for capital, partners looking for capital are looking for that they're looking for that distinction where they can actually know they're going to get more uh, than what it says on the, on the website, that you can actually, the proof's in the pudding, we're going to stand by our principles and actually not only do we push companies to a higher standard, uh, Sarah, it, it's, it's, it's self-reinforcing, we also push ourselves to a higher standard. We share knowledge, we gather knowledge from these companies and together it's kind of a journey we try to pollinize that in the rest of our portfolio. So um, it's more a journey than a final destination. But I think this is how long-term investing, in my mind, is, is actually evolving. And um, and the reality is, we think that approach uh, brings us unique opportunity that we may not see otherwise. So from that perspective, um, that's something we're really proud and want to anchor our brand and approach on.
0: Well, that is that's probably a good place to to leave it. But this this combination of performance and progress and your being a um, preferred partner um, is something that I think is 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 critical. And I think that companies recognize that they want to have shareholders who are going to be with them on that journey. Um, not everything will go well on that journey. We all we all know that. Uh, but that is, um, is part of that. So um, thank you for your um, for your leadership of this important organization. Obviously thank you for your support of FCLT Global and thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Sarah. I'm really proud to be part of FCLT. It's an important uh, organization. So thank you for your, thanks to you for your leadership.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Going Long with FCLT Global. Be sure to hit subscribe to get new episodes every other Monday. To learn more, visit our website at fcltglobal.org.